Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we've been watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chichong, a culture and critic. Uh, and this week we're talking about The Undoing, a hot limited series on HBO, and Shithouse, a movie that I think a lot of people will enjoy. Um, but before we get into that, Pellin, tell me, how are you doing? Honestly, I'm feeling so much more bolder with my hot takes after David Fincher just let it rip this week on Twitter. I now feel emboldened in my thought process. One of which is, you know, if you don't like coconut, grow up. If you don't like onions or garlic or tomatoes, I think everyone should just grow up. I think picky eaters are annoying. That's my hot take. Wow. Fincher gave me the balls to say it. Sorry. Damn, we're not even into like our main sections and you're already just going off. I I guess I respect that. But that's it. That's how that's all that's been on my mind. This okay, week. good week. <laughs> the only thing. Um how about you? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I guess the the only meaningful thing that's going on in my personal life is I'm I'm sad about one of my favorite restaurants in New York closing um Mimi's Diner I think in, in Prospect Heights and it's it's closing because of the of the pandemic and it fucking sucks yeah rest in peace Mimi's we will miss you hopefully maybe one day we'll see you back in some shape or form yeah. um until then what did you watch this week Jenny uh so I watched The Undoing which I think a lot of people are watching right now um yep. It's a six episode limited series. Again, shout out to limited series. <laughs> it's just, we're on a roll. Yeah. We're, we're like, like, I don't think we've done an episode so far where we haven't talked about a limited series. It's fine. Yeah. We just need like this positive uh, feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the undoing it's on HBO. Um, there'll be six episodes and we're going to be talking about everything sort of up to up through like episode three. We're trying to do this thing where we're being mindful of the people that have lives yeah. uh, outside of TV and film. Yeah. Don't know what that looks like. Uh, really happy for you all. <laughs> but um, for, for us, we're just, you know, we're slowing our roll down just to kind of accommodate for you. Lot. Yeah. Going to try not to have too many spoilers. Going to try to speak more generally. So hopefully, you know, all of you enjoy this. So The Undoing, it's um, by David E. Kelly. Um, you might recognize him from previous series like Ally McBeal, um, Big Little Lies, and it stars kind of like A-listers like Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, uh, Donald Sutherland, Noah Jupe, who I know Pelham's a fan of. Love Noah Jupe. Yeah, um, Edgar Ramirez and a whole lot of other people. Uh, yeah, and Nicole Kidman's fillers also. Oh, yes, and her her hair um i guess that i'm not sure if that's a wig or not shout out to wigs man let me my hair has been falling <laughs> out so much uh during this pandemic that i feel like i'm headed that way but yeah shout out to wigs shout out to nicole kidman's wig in this tv show yeah it's yeah. doing a lot really um and so this series is based off a a novel from 2014 um you should have known by jean hanf Corlitz. Um, although apparently quite a bit has been changed from the original novels. So, Interesting. Yeah, so I guess there are some surprises here. Um, a brief summary, uh, Grace, played by Kinman, she is this woman on the Upper East Side with seemingly kind of a perfect life, a beautiful townhouse. Her husband is this charming doctor, played by Grant. Her son is like a sweet kid. This is Noah Jupe. She's like a respectable therapist. She has a lot of similarly wealthy professional mom friends. Um, so this like seemingly perfect life is kind of derailed by this really gruesome murder of uh, a mom at her son's elite private school and brief 
spoiler, her husband becomes implicated in the murder and then it sort of spirals out from there. So it's sort of a thriller. It's a whodunit. It's a melodrama. And it's definitely kind of one of this this genre, I think, that we've seen over the past few years and, and beyond devoted to kind of looking at the the psyche of these wealthy, upper class, um, sort of high-strung white women, particularly. Like if you think about Big Little Lies, which again is by the same um, showrunner as the show, um, Sharp Objects, Little Fires Everywhere. It's like Naomi Fry for The New Yorker. She describes it as like a long tradition devoted to examining the shadowy psychic crevices of high-strung upper-class white women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's kind of interesting is that in the original novel, the characters were primarily Jewish actually and they apparently weren't nearly this rich like this whole new stratosphere of Upper East Side wealth Mm. Um, and a part of the plot was about how Grace felt kind of poor despite you know her obvious privileges Mm. but this show is super waspy super white super sort of the classic Park Ave Madison Ave Fifth Avenue um, Upper East Side yeah I mean it's interesting that 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 happened that switch happened yeah I kind of wish it hadn't yeah. Even though, even though I'm, I, even though like I'm enjoying all of this for for the same reasons that you know everyone is enjoying it, but I would have liked to have seen that version of it, uh, honestly, especially given that like a lot of my teens, early adult years were spent watching like Desperate Housewives and Weeds, which are mm. both like very middle class shows. Like it was middle class suburbia, you know, in the McMansions or whatever. Whereas you know th- something like this and like Big Little Lies, the, the it's like. Yeah, like upper middle class at the, at minimum. Yeah, it's this kind of genre. You know, we like to, we as the viewers, we like to take a peek at these rarefied worlds. Um, but we also like to see their, their sort of undoing um, and like downfall and stuff. Like yeah. the ideal show kind of like strikes that perfect balance between showing us these this like 1%, the life of the 1% and also skewering it and really going f- mm-hmm. for it with like a full-throated, like just like cutthroat way of, of poking holes at it. Like Succession. That's like yeah. one of my favorite sort of examples of the genre. Yeah. Um, but then you have shows like this and like Big Little Lies where I think it's a little more unclear how much or how successfully it really does the, the satire part. Um, yeah. Like yeah. at some point it's kind of like, the satire melts away and it's a little bit more about the the melodrama and like the like trying to evoke sympathy for these people or, or something like that. Yeah. It's a little bit more interested in that versus I think the succession bit of like seeing like this world. Do you do you look at it? Do you look at these people? Like, yeah, what a fucking wreck. Well, yeah, like I remember when 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 Big Little Lies was really big, the whole sorry, um, the, the <laughs> whole was very thing. big and very little. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, the biggest of the littlest lies um back when that was in the, in the height of its popularity everyone was kind of talking about you know rich women also see abuse right abuse doesn't mm-hmm. care for social class and you know misogyny happens everywhere you look mm-hmm. and then that kind of started that whole like well yeah but then who's afforded sympathy um and then who's afforded pity you know these two things are, are very very different and that i guess that, that with with the, the undoing um, all of these things like how do you really know a person is like what yeah. it kind of comes down to yeah and the show kind of it it does show a lot of these um, sort of disparities and the contrast very deliberately like you know people like maids kind of serving these very rich antagonists and their and their peers um, as they talk about you know philanthropy and stuff like that or mm. this like truly palatial sort of 
penthouse owned by Grace's father, played by Donald Sutherland. So it, it highlights all of that. But then the question is like, you know, of course, how much sympathy should we have for these characters? And yeah. in this case, the thrust of the the entire show is watching this privileged, wealthy white woman, um, Grace, fall apart and seeing the way that she reacts to these different sort of forces um, disrupting her once perfect life. Like she's truly appalled and shocked by the detectives um, and the police's treatment of her where they're, you know, questioning her. They're implying that she could be an accomplice or they're like tracking down her father and, and stuff like that. And they're just like not intimidated at all by her wealth or her profession or her respectability, all of which are things that, you know, normally um, would protect her and shield her and give her, you know, the yeah. sort of upper hand. And of course that sort of, yeah, the, the wealthy white woman um, thing where, you know, crimes are just, that's something that they are protected from rather than something that they are accused of committing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the way that it's set up also is that like every time the detective who is played by Edgar Ramirez, he comes off as annoying to even the viewer where you're like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Like, why why are you being such a dick? Yeah. Yeah. Why are you being such a dick? Why just leave this woman alone? Whatever. And then the end of episode three, the reveal is that she is caught on camera um, around the time and around the area of where the murder was committed. I mean, obviously from this point onwards, like now we realize that we don't have a reliable narrator. And then yeah. now, now what do we do? You know? Right. Grace is, she's written in kind of a funny way where I don't know if it's truly deliberate or not, where you can't really get a good read on her. Like, yeah. what is she really like? What's her true personality? What are her motivations, her intentions? Yeah. It really seems to, to ricochet just sort of like wildly depending on, the needs of the storyline at any given point. But then it's the question of like, is that on purpose? Like, is this illustrating some unraveling of, of her mind or Mm -hmm. split personalities or other sort of suspect things? Um, Or is this just like a poorly written character? Yeah. And I guess we'll find out in the second half of this season. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot more to come, I believe. Um, I think like the first half of it is it, it, like the crime happens in the first episode but then it's the unraveling of her world it's like you said i think i think it's more um trying to understand why we want to sympathize with this woman so much like like all main characters do kind of like they, they elicit that kind of sympathy but at the same time you know we've got this whole other woman that has died in the first episode that we also know nothing about um, yeah it's so, a yeah it's a the woman you know the murder victim she is the the mother of a sort of um you know lower income family um her her child goes to the school ostensibly as like a scholarship student um this woman is kind of like coded as being like a you know a latina woman although the actress is italian which is interesting um she lives in harlem um she like her death this like incredibly gruesome murder that sort of falls to the wayside and impales in comparison to you know, the, the tragedy that Grace's life is becoming, which is, again, it's hard to say or, like, critique this at this point while we've only seen three episodes to know whether or not this is going to, you know, the show is going to address us at some point or give us more of a peek into the actual victim, the woman, as her life was. But, yeah, like, this character, you know, as she's been shown in these first few episodes, she's just kind of, like, a, a really seductive, attractive even portrayed as like obsessive um, woman of color who who ends up, you know, 
murdered in the most terrible way possible. Um, and so will the show take its time to undo these kind of, you know, leaning into tropes and stereotypes? Um, or is it going to continue to sort of shift her um, to the to the side as we focus more on the victimhood that, that Grace sort of embodies? Yeah. And I think that if they figure out how to resolve that in the second half of this, I think it would be very clever. Because... Yeah. You know, like, you have the detective who is a man of colour. You have Mm -hmm. the victim who's meant to be a woman of colour. Her husband is a man of colour. In order... And if they... So if they figure out how to subvert that, then that'll be... You know, that's great. Like, by all means, like, subvert the viewer's biases. Yeah. Yeah, so um, obviously the internet is rife with theories as to who done it because we have a whodunit. Um, what are some of the ones that you've read that you think are actually interesting? I've been like definitely going into a Reddit sort of, um, rabbit hole of all these different theories. Um, and we'll link to some of the theories that, um, have been sort of aggregated from Reddit forums, but there are a lot of theories. Like, again, the most obvious one is like, oh, it's Grace. She is the one who had some sort of psychotic break or some sort of, you know, dissociative identity disorder or something. And she's the one who did it. I think that's a little bit too... Like, the twist came too early for this to actually hold water as the the final answer, I think. Um, so I don't know if I believe this one. I agree. I think I think it's too clean. I think it's a, it's a misdirect, yeah. if anything. Yeah. And then there are theories. Um, there are theories essentially implicating every single person. Like, people really have <laughs> yeah. some imagination. Like, there are some theories where it's Grace's father, Franklin. Some theories where it is actually Jonathan after all. Um, after we've been like led to m- believe that it wasn't him. There's even a theory I saw that says it was Henry, the Noah Jupes character, the like yeah. tween kid. That's my theory. <laughs> I I think I texted you right like a couple weeks back. Like I think after episode one, I'd seen it. I was just like the kid did it. <laughs> and your so, yeah. and your reaction was like that's dark, and I'm just. <laughs> Well, the, okay, so the reason for that, the reason why I think it might be the kid is because I think Noah Jupe is too big of a talent for them to let mm. like go to waste. I think up until now, he's great. He's a great kid, but I think he's got the range to play a psychotic tween. Damn. And I okay. think that I don't think, yeah, I don't think they're going to let that go to waste. So that's why. <laughs> okay, that is, I'll accept that as a theory. Um, I don't know which theory I truly buy. I, I think I'm sort of leaning towards... Something having to do with Franklin, Grace's dad. Um, yeah. 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 That would make sense, especially if it's like he... Maybe he found out before she did that his son-in-law was having an affair and wanted to just kind of clean it up for her. Um, yeah. And then obviously he's kind of like losing his mind because he's very insistent on the fact that he just did it and she needs to let it go. But then again, he is helping her when she insists back. So I don't know. There's obviously, there's still a part of me that's like, well, maybe the husband did it anyway. Like, like Elena's husband. Oh, so like misdirect away from that, like yeah. classic sort of suspect, usually in any sort of murder of a, yeah. you know, a married yeah. woman. There's so many possibilities. I mean, that that would be the most boring one. <laughs> like, that would be the most boring <laughs> yeah. option. I, I definitely wouldn't care for that kind of ending. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. It's, it's giving me like all the, like right now I'm reading Tana French which is also like classic whodunit novelist. Yeah, it's just like smooth brain. <laughs> just, just give me all the uh, murder mystery thrillers that I can get. Yeah, unfortunately, like this is this is all it's going to take for me. Like park me in front of a TV in the show and I'll be fine. Yeah, man. Nah. 
So yeah, that's The Undoing. And as for you, Pelin, what did you watch this week? So this week I watched Shithouse, which is a movie that's available uh, for rental on on Amazon Prime Video. I ended up paying seven bucks, which isn't that bad. Yeah. I think, how much did you pay for it? I, I only paid, uh, I think, 99 cents, which is uh, even better. Yeah. So this is, it won the award, the Grand Jury Award at South by Southwest, which was cancelled, but they still did the whole judging aspects virtually so this won that and um it's a first time movie by a 23 year old filmmaker named cooper rafe he wrote it he directed it he starred in it as the main role and he also co-edited it Damn. which is uh you know fuck you cooper yeah uh, 23 are you kidding me get out of here man anyway so basically he shot a short film in his last year of college sent it to jay duplass who's also a filmmaker and a producer and jay duplass told him to just make a film and i'm sure he helped him with funding along the way and anyway this is actually one of the most charming films i've seen this year yeah, I watched it um, with your recommendation, and I ended up really liking it. It was really touching and emotional and truly, like, painfully relatable in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So the in terms of what it's about, so Cooper Rafe is the, is the main star. He plays a guy named Alex, who is in freshman year of university in LA. He's originally from texas and he's like this sensitive kid and he he meets and he spends a very like both emotionally and sexually intimate night with his ra maggie and she approaches college very differently than him it's just it really did take me by surprise because i was kind of expecting more of a headier film that i ended up getting which i really appreciated i really appreciated that was actually it's quite light-hearted but also it approaches very serious themes in ways it's done very deftly. It was just I had that perfect little in between. Why? Um, so why was it relatable to you? Um, I think just the whole college experience and especially, you know, the first year, freshman year, that feeling of profound sort of loneliness and not fitting in and not really finding your yeah. groove yet um, and missing home terribly, which is like a constant theme in my life. Um, I found that yeah. so, so relatable and yeah, it was written really honestly and really realistically, I think. The dialogue, especially, I found was so, like, spot on for people of that age in this context. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, college, man. Um, what what was your sort of, like, point of relatability to it? So I, I uh, went to university with a very close friend at the time. We went to the same sixth form together, which is the same, like, high school. And even though I was there with someone, it did it did feel very, very isolating just because the college that I went to was not... Um, I'd never been anywhere like that before. Um, so I, I ended up going to like Cambridge from, you know, London. I've been to public schools my whole life. And then I was dropped in the middle of this ocean of like very privileged white people. Mm. And that was very isolating. And that, yeah, you, that, that just made me... Did you eventually me... figure it out? No, no, like for three years, that was me. Like, <laughs> I just never did. I never did. I think that was, it felt good seeing, you know, like with this character, obviously there was like a turning point and then there is some resolution. It was good to see that because I never got it for myself. I think I never found a way to fit in over three years. I just really, what kind of resonated with me with the film was I really appreciated how honest the protagonist was about his feelings, yeah. which I never was. You know. So in the film, yeah, like the this protagonist, Alex, he's so forthcoming. Like he talks about his feelings. He he says, I love you to his mom and his sister over the phone. He says like as, you know, an 18, 19 year old 
guy in college is like, I, I love hugs. Like, what's wrong with hugs? And yeah. like, I miss home and, and things that, you know, everyone feels, I guess, at some point or another. But, you know, we often don't express it because it hurts and it's risky to be so vulnerable. Yeah, I I guess my college experience was probably maybe a little bit similar thematically, if dissimilar in sort of practice and, and actual experience. I went to um, like a, a public university in Michigan where I'm from. And my freshman year, especially, it, I just felt like so, it was so isolating. Um, mm. And like, I think within the first month or two of me going there, my dog died at home. And that was like no. a whole thing on top of it. And like, I wasn't friends with the people in my dorm, which is where typ- people typically make friends um, their first year with mm. the people who surround them in their dorm room and mm. um, their hallways and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I had to join like a, like some clubs and stuff like Maggie suggests to Alex in the in in shit house. Yeah. I had to join clubs to eventually kind of meet people and form a group of friends and mm-hmm. I think I I sort of attained that in probably my second year of college. But yeah, I just remember that the first year was really hard as I imagine is for a lot of people. Yeah, I think um Maggie and Alex. So Alex is the main guy and then Maggie's the love interest. They both have um separate understandings of what college is meant to be and for Alex he doesn't know what it's meant to be whereas Maggie has the the kind of the standard idea of what it is which is like it's a time to be selfish it's a time to have fun it's a time to only you know think about what you want to do um which is a lot to ask of anyone between the ages of 18 and 22 (laughs) to be honest um but yeah like I went through the motions that Maggie talks about like, I tried to, you know, go to the parties. I tried to make friends. I tried to have a love life or a casual one. And um, I think for me, like, despite all of that, I still felt really alone, which is which is why, you know, it, th- this film is very tidy in terms of the plot. It, it starts yeah. off a certain way and then it ends really, really nice and buttoned up. Um, mm. Obviously, college is not like that. And it wasn't like that you know for me I'm sure not for a lot of people either but I appreciated seeing these two approaches and how they clash and how maybe one neither one is right you know and maybe it's somewhere in between right that's I I really like that too like you know especially being someone who you know instinctively I would I would find more in common with Alex and I would sort of agree with his approach to life like wow like I it's sort of these other people like other people are so busy you know trying to go to parties and get drunk and like score with each other that they're just like not really interested in the kind of things I'm interested in. But the Maggie like points out like, you know, people here don't really owe you anything. They're not here to like provide you with your, your new comfort zone outside of your family. Right. You know, you have to make an effort and try to meet people where they are too. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So there's sort of like truth to what both their both of them are, are saying. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because like, it's not like Alex is, you know the common cultural understanding of a loner he's actually no. he's actually really funny he he is not socially awkward not really yeah um and again like i love the the sort of family aspect oh um, man really yeah. really refreshing to see like that that portrayed yeah. like just like a close loving relationship that you know maybe sometimes you think is this too codependent um yeah. but whatever like i've no, dude. I love my mom. Yeah, I love my family. That was the, that was the whole thing that I loved about it yeah. too. Was just like how prominent the mother role is in this, and how their relationship is so prominent. 
And when you when you read like interviews with Cooper Rafe, like he talks about that in almost every single yeah. one of them. It's like, you know, it's it's not so much the relationship that he has with Maggie, it's about yeah. the relationship that he has with his mother and like but yeah, like nothing comes close to that kind of unconditional love. Yeah, there's one pivotal scene that he has with his mother, like one phone call that I could not stop crying in. I don't know yeah, about you. Same. Um, yeah. It just, it, and you know, shout out to Cooper Ray for like showing a straight guy completely emotionally vulnerable yeah. um, and not shying away from it. And you know, it, it might make other people feel uncomfortable, but to me it was like yeah. perfect because it was genuine. It felt really genuine. You know, I haven't seen anything really like that um, in terms of like a, parental child relationship especially when it comes to like coming of age movies like yeah coming of age so often it's it's sort of like they're directing you away from you know family and parents and seeing how what kind of person you are outside of that and this is also like Cooper Rafe's character Alex is obviously away from his family um and it's showing like how he can grow away from them as well but you don't have to you know relinquish your tie with your family you don't have to cut it it's it's there yeah. and it will always be there and it's still so incredibly strong um yeah that's not weird it's not weird that he misses them it's not weird that he just wants a hug from his mum. yeah um but yeah like what what you talked about with coming of age movies like especially when it comes to parents another one came to mind which was ladybird and oh, ladybird is a perfect oh, example yeah. of like you know the family and what the family means to coming of age I, yeah, I like that. I like that film a lot too, um, because of that that bond between mother and daughter, and and daughter and family, and just again this sort of impossible like relationship that's that's fraught, and it's so loving and and so full of emotion, and it's yeah, it can be like a little bit stifling and choking as well, but it's so mm-hmm. it's so important that there's really no there's really nothing that can quite um, replace it or, or cut it off. Yeah, and I think that's another problem and like a huge oversight for a lot of people that want to make coming of age movies is like actually for me coming of age has never really ended like I still (laughs) feel like I'm coming of age at this at this point in my life as well Mm -hmm. but the coming of age is like it's not just about my relationship with myself it's also about the relationship that I have with my parents and I think that transforms so much you know like there's a point in your life where you realize that your parents don't know everything Mm -hmm. and uh, they aren't like the ultimate authority on what is right in the world um that is something that i still grapple with now especially as like my parents get older Mm -hmm. and like i get older yeah you know it's what what does what does care look like right the care the care aspect shifts like yeah it's it's just yeah like these are all things that i wish you know especially like the reason why I, I appreciated this film is because it was coming of age during college and not before college. And I think there just needs to be more coming of age films either during or after college. Like, you know, we talk about Ladybird, which, which is before, and I really love that it talks about family, but you know, Francis Ha is another perfect film about coming of age and it doesn't entail school or university. It's about life. And that's also great because it's about relationships. It's about a sense of self. Um, yeah. I, I think coming of age needs to not have a, an age limit on it, basically. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, life is just like one continual yeah. growing process. Um, it never ends. It never ends. it never ends until it does. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want more people to see this film. I think it's really great for especially anyone that's around our age that is like, you know, it's been a couple of years since they've 
graduated. And I just really appreciate that, that this film exists in that little canon of coming of age genre. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Totally agreed. Thank you for recommending this film. I would definitely you know, recommend other people watch this as well. Cool. So that's what we watched this week. And in terms of culture, it just with the theme of ignoring anything politics related, Jenny, what do you want to talk about (laughs) this week? (laughs) Um, So I thought this week we could talk about the general idea of reboots and reunions kind of kind of pegged to um, Gossip Girl reboot picks that have floated around the Internet recently. Oh, man. Everyone's so excited. Yeah, that really caused a bit of a buzz it's wild seeing the new idea of like teenhood and like um kind of mm-hmm, new york mm-hmm. high schoolhood embodied by these this new set of characters i guess yeah yeah i mean obviously you know when it comes to teen dramas euphoria has brought it back into the like the specter of yeah. cool and i think it was around that time that they i guess were talking about rebooting gossip girl as well but I think I guess the reason why this got everyone so excited is is obviously Gossip Girl has a huge cult mm-hmm. following even to this day. I think it's something that back in the day when it was airing and we were all younger and fresher, even then we knew that it wasn't like great. But we also understood that that, that was like our version of Succession where it was just like, what are these batshit rich people doing? <laughs> um, and then, you know, that was like... Uh, along with the OC it was like a whole moment in in our in our upbringing I guess of of TV and teenhood and now Um, they're rebooting it for the current age yeah for the current age and like what's great about it is that they are starting with a completely fresh slate of characters a fresh like it's seven years after the last one Gossip Girl is back as a website that's the thing right so it closed down seven years ago and now it's rebooting and now these people have to deal with it in this like new age of social media or whatever yeah i'm interested to see how they tackle it obviously i think what's great about gossip girl is that it doesn't have to be the best written show and it will still be forgiven because it was never the best it's just to look good and be entertaining yeah yeah but yeah i think in terms of reboots and reunions this is just like one of the latest that's happening yeah right? we're in like a you know golden age of reboots re- reunions remixes everything i think like with the especially with streaming like all these old classics are available to these new generations as well as the generations that watched them previously so there's just like a, a, a demand to see these beloved characters get together again get reincarnated in these new forms and of course yeah. it's like a really easy thing for uh creators and like showrunners and stuff to go Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. just like this built-in nostalgia market yeah like this week we also saw the promo trailer for fresh prince of bel-air's reunion meeting so that's not necessarily like a reboot of the show they're just like all the former stars are getting together and kind of talking about all their memories and 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 everything um but then obviously we got the news that friends is gonna start filming next year in march and friends is actually gonna be all the current stars which is nuts while they got everyone it's wild that they got everyone, and that just kind of goes to show that like they actually did all, I guess, get along or like kept some kind yeah. of like professional stability. Because you know, like they're never gonna do a Sex in the City reboot because no. those girls were fighting <laughs> back in that day. So sure, yeah, like why not do it for the nostalgia? Hell, fuck it, I don't. Whatever, it's yeah. all about money. 
it's all about money and like nostalgia sells and we all need especially in this year we all need some kind of nostalgic comfort we just need our we just need our comfort food and a gossip girl reboot is exactly that and that's what we've been watching and keeping an eye on lately. Um, if you're watching anything that you think we should check out, let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. Um, or you can just at or DM us um, on Twitter and Instagram, criticismisdead, all one word. Um, we also have a newsletter with show notes and links and other shit on Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Only five stars. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Great. Then see you all next week. See you next week. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Jung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.